Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Oh, hi there. Don Wardlow here. Your baseball lifer. Later on, we've got a guest, author Zach Ford, and his book is called Called Up, Ballplayers Remember Becoming Major Leaguers. And so we'll talk to Zach about that book later on in the program. It's the 8th of December as I record this, and Christmas shopping is on everybody's mind. And on... The 22nd, the Friday before Christmas, I'm going to release a Baseball Lifer podcast that will be a Christmas present to my listeners. Somebody you never in a million years would think was a lifelong baseball fan. But you'll hear him on the 22nd, two weeks from today, as I record this. That's the day that podcast will be released. The baseball winter meetings took place in... Nashville, Tennessee, during the past week. They hadn't gotten underway when I was on the air with you last Friday. On Sunday, December 3rd, longtime manager Jim Leland was elected to the Hall of Fame. He was a manager for 22 years with the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Florida Marlins, the Colorado Rockies, and the Detroit Tigers. He had some wonderful teams in Pittsburgh, winning the National League East in 1990, 1991, and 1992, behind such talents as Barry Bonds and Andy Vance like. But the Pirates could never get over the top. They lost in 1990 to the Cincinnati Reds, and then twice in seven-game series, they lost to the Braves in 1991 and in 1992. But Jim Leland, the manager of the Pirates, moved on, went to the Florida Marlins, and got his World Series winner in 1997. He went to the World Series twice after that, with the Tigers in 2006 and 2012. Both times, those Tiger teams were swept. In 2006, they were swept by the St. Louis Cardinals, and in 2012, it was the San Francisco Giants with pitcher Madison Bumgartner taking the Tigers out in four straight. But congratulations to Jim Leland for joining the Hall of Fame. On December 6th, this past Wednesday, longtime Red Sox broadcaster Joe Castiglione won the Ford C. Frick Award. And so he will be enshrined in the broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame next July 20th. He broadcast with the Indians, although I don't have any footage of Joe doing any Cleveland Indians games. I wish I did. I do have some pieces, which I'm going to share with you now, to go along with a couple of pieces I shared a couple of weeks ago when I went over everybody who was on the ballot. I had the most difficulty finding the Joe Castiglione piece, which I thought would have been the easiest to locate. And that was the ending of the 2004 
World Series, if not the entire game. The Red Sox playing the St. Louis Cardinals on the edge of a four-game sweep. And this is how Joe Castiglione described the breaking of the curse of the Bambino. Out in the ninth inning, here on the banks of the Mississippi River, the Red Sox need one more out, swinging a ground ball, stabbed by Folk, he has it. He underhands the first, and the Boston Red Sox are the world champions. For the first time in 86 years, the Red Sox have won baseball's world championship. Can you believe it? So after all the heartbreak in Red Sox Nation, that was their moment of joy. The end of the 2004 World Series, and their man, Joe Castiglione, called it. We have two more pieces by Joe. The first one is on the unusual side. This is the League Championship Series. The Red Sox are in Houston. This is Game 4. The Red Sox are about to win Game 4. And Joe Castiglione does something of a pratfall as he's calling the winning play. Three on, two out, ninth inning, 8-6 Red Sox. And a great player at the plate in Alex Bregman. Kimbrell comes to the set. Outfield a step to the right, the pitch. Swing and a line drive, left field. Benintendi coming on, dives. And did he make the catch? He did. He got it. The Red Sox win. <laughs> the Red Sox win. I just went head over heels in my chair. <laughs> Joe just fell down. <laughs> oh, wow. What a catch by Andrew Benintendi. And they're not going to review it. Unbelievable. What a play. And the Red Sox lead the series three games to one. A most unusual ending of a ball game for Joe Castiglione going face first on the deck in Houston, but carrying on and bringing Red Sox fans the description of the end of the game. And our last piece from Joe is the end of the 2018 World Series. The Red Sox are in Los Angeles. They're ahead three games to one, and the end is near. Machado pinwheels the bat. Nobody on base, two men out. Bottom of the ninth, 5-1 Red Sox. Sale winds, he fires. Swing and a miss, strike three, it's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. The Boston Red Sox beat the Los Angeles Dodgers 5-1. They win the World Series four games to one. And the Red Sox become the first team in the 21st century with four world championships. Can you believe it? 2004, 2007, 2013, and 2018. All called by Joe Castiglione, who'd been in Boston since 1983 when he began working with Ken Coleman, who'd been in Boston since the 60s. Joe Castiglione is this year's Ford C. Frick Award winner. I had hoped Bill White would be put in the Hall of Fame one way or another. He was on the same ballot with Jim Leland, who won, along with umpire Joe West and others. And Bill White is 90 years old now. He was the first black play-by-play broadcaster in baseball. The Yankees brought him to the major leagues in 1971, and he worked there for 17 years. Later, he was the president of the National League. 
somehow he belongs in Cooperstown. And this is how Bill sounded with the Yankees in 1976. It's the League Championship Series, Game 5, bottom of the ninth, and the score is 6-all with Chris Chambliss coming to the plate looking to send the Yankees to the World Series. Chambliss has had some kind of series. He's gotten some big hits all year long for the Yankees. And he's in now against the right-hander, Mark Littell. And here's the first pitch. Hit deep to right field. That ball is up against the run. It's gone. A home run for Chris Chambliss, and this championship series is over. Look at those fans out on the field. Somebody picked up second base. Somebody just knocked Chambliss down. He's making it to third. These fans are all over the field trying to let you, and the cops are out trying to let Chambliss score. Ultimately, Chambliss did score, and the Yankees won 7-6, ending the league championship series over the Royals. The voice of Bill White, a man who one day, somehow, some way, I hope, finds his way to Cooperstown. On December 7th, the day after Joe Castiglione was elected to the Hall of Fame, the Yankees pulled off a trade that baseball fans have been waiting for. They picked up not only the megastar Juan Soto, but they picked up Golden Glove outfielder Trent Grisham. They did give away a large package, including perennial backup catcher Kyle Higashioka and pitcher Mike King. And Mike King got hurt midway last season and I don't know yet when he's going to be able to pitch but hopefully he will do as well with San Diego as he did with the Yankees when we come back it'll be our guest author Zach Ford his book is called called up ball players remember becoming major leaguers on the baseball lifer podcast that's what you'll hear if you keep it where you got it I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. Courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here, and my guest, 
is a man named Zach Ford. His book is called Up. Ball players remember becoming major leaguers. Zach, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Don. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Take me back to before this book was even a dream. Uh, what was the beginning for baseball for Zach Ford? How did I become a baseball fan? That's basically what you're uh You got asking. it. My, my <laughs> day of discovery was the beginning of spring training, 1971. And I listened to the Mets, uh, Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson, and I was gone. My dad used to actually take me to San Francisco 49er training camp. I know that's a football, but I was... and. I got really locked into football. That same summer, my dad ended up taking me to Candlestick Park for the first time, 1987. And from there on out, I switched allegiance to baseball. I'm still a 49ers fan, but I switched allegiance to uh, baseball as my favorite sport and the Giants as my favorite team. And I've always been uh, interested just uh, in the, the human interest uh, side of baseball. I think that there are... Um, you know, human interest stories in baseball, often unlike some of the other uh, sports, just based upon the minor league structure, the uh, the length the sport's been around, a lot of the other uh, elements as far as how uh, American history has been ingrained and 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 woven into uh, baseball history and vice versa. Um, that's always been fascinating to me, you know, but it was basically like going to that game in 1987 at Candlestick Park and it flipped a switch for me and I was a baseball fan from there on out. Did you plan on writing about the game? Did you think about broadcasting the game? What was your idea for your future where baseball was concerned? I guess you could say I wanted to be a baseball player, but <laughs> hey, I was about a 200. Yeah, I was about a 200 hitter in Little League, and you know, typically 200 hitters in Little League don't go too far. No. Um, so I, I kind of realized that I was going to have to uh, uh, make my mark in baseball a different way. And, you know, growing up, I, I was really interested in writing. That's what I wanted to do. And... Um, um, you know, interview ball players, write stories about them, piece together first person uh, player narratives has always been a passionate thing of mine too, an interest of mine. Um, so I, I wanted to get into like the writing side um, and dreamed of being a, um, a um, beat writer for a team. Obviously my preference would have been the Giants, but I also... Um, I'm 45 years old to give you a little bit of context. So I started college in the mid nineties. Now in the mid nineties, that was when, uh, I, you know, saw, uh, something called the internet that was, uh, <laughs> growing. And, uh, unfortunately a lot of the, 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 you know, the sports writing jobs are kind of few and far between. And, and, uh, to be candid, I was really focused on baseball. So I, uh, you know, didn't really think about, you know, writing other things and trying to, you know, eventually becoming um, a baseball writer. Um, so I ended up, it ultimately ended up just uh, majoring in business and doing some other stuff. But I always had that in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back to baseball writing. Um, so now, you know, being a little bit older, um, 
you know, like I, like I made reference to the internet in the past, I made that reference because um, that was decreasing the the number of uh, writing jobs that were around. Um, but, you know, fast forward, you know, I, I, I've reached the point um, in my life where, you know, I have a little bit more time, a little bit more flexibility. The kids are a little bit older, so I'm able to revisit some of my uh, early hobbies and passions. And one of them was uh, baseball writing. And I really wanted to, you know, put together a book and wanted to do that since I was a kid and finally, finally did it at 45 years old, <laughs> a little bit older than I had planned, but uh, I got it done. We're on the Baseball Lifer podcast. This is Don Wardlow. My guest is Zach Ford. The book is Called Up. All players remember becoming major leaguers. It was published the end of October, not all that long ago. It's available wherever you buy your books. Had you been able to write in a blog or did you have any kind of an article, a column before this book came out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've written before. Um, I mean, I, I had a newsletter uh, when I was in high school and college on the old Pacific Coast League. I've written articles on uh, for uh, different publications, Sabre, a few others. Uh, but this is my first uh, large uh, book project. You have something to do with the Pacific Coast League Historical Society. And the Pacific Coast League, that goes back forever. Yeah, it does. 1903. Um, and I have a unique int uh, interest in that because my great uncle uh, was a former Coast League ball player in the 30s and 40s. And that's how I got my interest in um, I used to go to old Pacific Coast reunions with him, got to become friends with a lot of his old teammates, opponents, um, and it kind of grew a passion uh, for the old Pacific Coast League um, and interviewing uh, former ballplayers. Um, so, you know, that experience is also one of the things that one of the influences that ultimately ended up leading to this book, uh, my great uncle was what they called a, a phantom uh, big leaguer. Uh, spent a few weeks on the uh, roster of the Red Sox in 1946. Uh, got released and then got uh, picked up by the uh, Boston Braves the next day for about a week. He spent about three or four weeks in the big leagues, uh, but did not get into a game. Um, and that... Um, that experience that he had, um, you know, being a Coast League prospect in the 30s and early 40s going off the war and then um, having that uh, brief experience as a phantom big leaguer is really one of the inspirations for this particular book. Going back to 1996, when I was in double A, I was able to interview Harry Callis, who was an old Pacific nice. Coast leaguer. He he broadcasts for the Hawaii Islanders, and he allowed me to talk with him about doing recreations because we were doing a recreation to celebrate the 75th anniversary of baseball on the radio. And Harry <laughs> loaned me, loaned us some of his in information, told us some of his stories about working with the Islanders, working recreations, because they weren't going to ship him from Hawaii back to the mainland whenever the team went back there. So mm -hmm. and now later, much later in on this podcast, I've been able to get hold of a couple of Pacific Coast League broadcasters, uh, Tim Haggerty from, from the Chihuahuas, 
and my caps from Round Rock. The league, nice. the league lives on. It does. It does. It's a little bit different than the uh, the pre nineteen fifty eight days, but <laughs> still a very strong league. I still like going to games. The uh, Sacramento uh, River Cats are now the uh, the team that's close by in the Coast League for us, and uh, still enjoy going to those ball games. So how did you begin to do the research for the book called up ball players remember becoming major leaguers? I mean, frankly, the idea of contacting ball players and big league announcers, even though I've been lucky, I've had one John Sadak on this program. Uh, in a mm -hmm. lot of cases, it, it's a daunting prospect to try and find these people and finding Guys like Bill Dennehy, who didn't have all that much experience, had to be a mm -hmm. real scavenger hunt. There wasn't really one particular reason or one particular uh, way in which I was able to reach out and find folks. Um, I would say um, that a good chunk of them came um, out of just uh, scouring social media, believe it or not. Um you know, I, you know, there'd be a, a, a few players maybe that, you know, you see on social media and baseball uniforms or something like that from a few years gone by. And, you know, you do a Google search on them and go, OK, well, OK, this person had a cup of coffee and, you know, 1980, whatnot. And then uh, you reach out to them and then you find out, you know, you get those suggested uh, Facebook friends. And then all of a sudden there are more uh, baseball players in your in your friend's suggestion. So a lot of them came that way, but I mean, a lot of them also came from, uh, friends. I had some, you know, some contacts within baseball, um, that kind of helped branch out. Some of the players I talked to would then give me names of other players and contact information of other players. Um, so it, it really kind of grew. I mean, it was a course of three years uh, that I was conducting these interviews. So, um, it, it you know, it, it, it took a while, but the, uh, the um, the network definitely grew, and I'm happy that uh, we have 109 first-person player stories uh, in the book. I think the most famous one, and I'm not sure how well he's remembered now, but he certainly should be because he had a wicked fastball back in the day, and that's Sudden Sam McDowell. Tell me a little about locating him and getting Sudden Sam to tell his tale. Absolutely. Uh, Sam McDowell is actually the first debut in the story. Uh, so, uh, yeah, came up as an 18 year old in 1961 with the Cleveland Indians. Um, had a, uh, you know, a, a huge or a really quick uh, journey through the, through the minor leagues, obviously, when he's making his debut at 18. <laughs> Uh, but he gets called up and, you know, he's, uh, you know, a, a green 18 year old kid, not quite sure what exactly to uh, expect, but he's facing the Minnesota Twins and and uh, Harmon Killebrew and um, that great lineup. And, uh, you know, he, he just has the one he just has the one game. He just the one outing. But he did indicate that, uh, you know, it was such a cold night and he was trying to throw so hard. And, you know, he was just a green guy, not really, you know thinking too much um about uh, i guess you could say uh how he's you know throwing or you know his his future but he was thrown so hard he just basically said he didn't want to um embarrass himself uh he threw he went out there um and um 
He was throwing so hard though that he ended up breaking a couple of ribs on a on a cold night. But uh, that was his that was his introduction to the big leagues. The one game in 1961. Uh, but then obviously had a few uh, you know substantial solid years with Indians uh, afterwards and became a, a Cleveland Indians uh, Hall of Fame uh, a team Hall of Famer as well. And he played for the Giants and later, I think, did some public speaking about some of the problems that he had with alcohol. Yes, yes. He, uh, yeah, he, um, he had, had definitely had some challenges uh, throughout his career and a little bit after, but uh, um, got things together and uh, is uh, living a very uh, fulfilling, uh, satisfying life. You got to look up to a guy like him or like a Don Newcomb who had the same problem, who would go ahead and tell the rest of the world, hey, this is what can happen, even if you're a great ball player. One of the guys you wrote about was in my professional debut, the first minor league game I broadcast. And wow. his, his name was Jalal Leach. And <laughs> I, I read That's one of my favorite stories. I read his piece and I tried to get him to come on this program without success, but he played for the 1991 Fort Lauderdale Yankees when I was broadcasting for the 91 Miracle from Pompano Beach. So tell, tell me a little about Jalal Leach. Well, Jalal Leach, um, you know, as you, as you know, you, you had referenced, he, uh, you made reference to him being in the minor leagues 1991. Well, his major league debut was the end of the 2001 season. So uh, that right there will tell you that that uh, man uh, definitely paid his dues, grinded it out, and uh, went through a, a lot of ups and downs in his uh, in his journey. Uh, however, um, you know, it's about 12 years in, and he's... Uh, you know, he said he couldn't reach. He couldn't remember quite where he reached, uh, where he was as far as the minor leaguer with the most minor league games without a major league call up. But he was pretty high up there. Um, he gets the uh, the news that he's going to the big leagues and shows up to can or it uh, shows up to. Uh, I guess they would call it uh, Pack Bell Park there. Now it's Oracle Park, the home of the Giants. Shows up late and he's excited. He gets the number 18, which is considered, I guess you could say, a real number, uh, not a, you know, a number like a lot of other rookies would be getting. But he's, you know, he puts on the uniform. He's looking in the mirror in the in the clubhouse. He's one of the first guys there. And Dusty Baker walks in and just kind of laughs and says, you know, I knew you'd be ready on your first day at the job on the job. <laughs> and, you know, Jim, Jim Bouton talks about his first number being 109 and a half <laughs> yeah so dusty baker takes him in for a little orientation lets him know what his role will be uh doesn't get into a particular game that day but does get into a game a little bit later um and he ends up um getting a standing ovation he doesn't get a hit but he does get a standing ovation his very first at bat, because by that time, the Giants fans and so many people, so many viewers are aware um, of the perseverance, the dedication, um, the obstacles, um, all that that he went through uh, to reach that level. And he accomplished that goal. He uh, he became a big, big leaguer. Another one is 
Mike Miseraka. You normally I wouldn't bring up Mike Miseraka, but he spent an entire year with the team I broadcast for. He was with the 1992 Fort Myers Miracle before my partner and I were promoted up to New Britain. And Miseraka mm-hmm. went along the line, and ultimately we found out that he had made the majors. We were fairly well astonished. It's funny you, you mentioned him, too. Uh, I actually got to see Mike Miseraka play uh, in A-ball. In 1991, in the Pacific, or in the California League for the Visalia Oaks, um, when he was with the Twin System, I mean, this 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 man was a undrafted free agent, uh, so you know, obviously didn't have a huge amount of money behind him, but he persevered. He it took a, you know a couple of different uh, franchises, but he did end up finding a spot with the Brewers. Uh, got uh, you know got called up 1997. And got his uh, big league debut. Um, what's kind of funny about Mike Miseraka is that uh, he had a, a, a unique element to that game. He actually had one of his buddies uh, that flew uh, flew over and was able to uh, see his debut in uh, Detroit. They played Little League together, grew up, they're friends. But this guy, Mike, said it was kind of funny because, you know, his, his buddy – is about six foot six. He's really good shape, kind of chiseled. Uh, and uh, when they went back into the uh, the hotel afterwards, the autograph hounds in the hotel actually went after his buddy Rob, not him. Oh, oh my! They think that Mike Mizoraka could have been a major league baseball player. They just assumed it was Rob. <laughs> <laughs> So that's kind of an interesting uh, orientation. You go, you pitch in the major leagues, you go back there, you, you have a buddy that shows up and uh, you go back to your hotel and the autograph hounds uh, kind of dismiss you and think that the uh, the player walking in is actually your buddy and not you. <laughs> I hear that. And and one he guy, thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, one pretty good rookie, Greg Jeffries, was refused flatly uh, to be admitted into the ballpark in in Chase Stadium where the Mets still played then until somebody, I forget who, rescued him because the security guards had no interest in Greg Jeffries, even though when he did break in as a rookie, he did some hitting. Yeah, he did. He was a good one. Now, one of the guys in your book is Gene Tennis. Now, leading up to the 1972 World Series, up until the time that Reggie Jackson got hurt. I don't know uh-huh. how many people outside of Oakland had an idea who Gene Tennis was. And if you mm-hmm. asked if you asked me, I would have thought it was tennis like the sport, T E double N I S. I found out, of course, later on it was T E N A C E. And what does this guy do at the big league level but become a World Series hero and a World Series MVP and he has a huge career, but you got to yeah. talk to him about day one. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Tina tennis had an interesting background because he didn't really have a position when he entered Pro Ball. He was a utility guy. Uh so after a few years, um, you know, he goes to the organization and goes, look, you know, I'm kicking around the low minor leagues as a utility guy. 
um, you know, you guys have to make a decision with me because, you know, he's he's thinking about just going home. You know, he can't make it. You know, he's not going to work his way up, you know, when he's a utility guy in the minor lower minor leagues. Um, so they decide to convert him to a catcher. Um, obviously, he played other positions at a big league level, too. But that was really what kind of catapulted him uh, to being on the radar of going up to the big leagues. So. 1969 it's only shoot it's less than a year and a half that he's been catching in the minor leagues um and he's you know in montgomery alabama he goes out he breaks curfew and he goes out drink he goes out with a few friends uh drinking you know enjoying the night he comes back to the hotel walks back to the hotel and he realizes that his manager is camped out waiting for them past curfew. Oh boy. And they're just like, what do I do? I guess I just have to pick my poison. And, uh, you know, he knows we're gone. Might as well just walk up there and just, uh, take it, you know, take the punishment. Right. He walks up, he sees his manager out in front of the hotel manager tells his teammates to go back up to their room that he'd deal with them later that Gene was going to follow him to his room. So Gene follows him to his room. The manager pours him a scotch and says, drink that. He's like, okay. His manager gets on the phone and he hears all this. Yes, I have him. He's here. Yeah, I was able to track him down. Okay, we'll get, we'll get him going. And then he says, okay, well, you may want to drink that scotch, you know, after he hangs up the phone. And Gene goes, okay, well, what's going, you know, what's, he's like, you're going to catch Catfish Hunter on Thursday night. Wow. That's how he found out that he was in a, going to the big leagues. He had, he had broken curfew, <laughs> came back and uh, his manager was camped out for him. Uh, told him that he was going to be pitching uh, to Catfish Hunter just a couple days later. Uh, but was interesting though, because he had indicated uh, that he had a pretty difficult introduction to the big leagues because the guy that he faced, um, you know, he caught Catfish Hunter, you know, obviously a star, not quite as established in 1969, obviously, but uh, he faced Denny McLean of the Tigers. And obviously Denny McLean of the Tigers for those few years then uh, was pretty much unhittable. He went 0 for 4, definitely had a bit of a, a difficult um um, major league introduction, uh, to say the least. He oh, actually yeah. said in in his first four starts, he faced four 20-game winners, and one of them was a Cy Young Award winner. <laughs> so could you imagine that? You, you know, you're you know, you only been catching a new position for shoot less than a year and a half, and you're going up to the big leagues, you're dealing with that, and then you're also your first uh few games, your orientation is uh Four 20-game winners, and one of them's a Cy Young Award winner. That's kind of funny. Trying to hit these guys. Yeah, but, but obviously he, was, he ended up having a great career, uh, both as a player and then ultimately as a coach, too. And the catfish hunter that he caught in 69 was only a year and a half removed from pitching a perfect game, which Catfish did in 1968. Mm-hmm. That has always surprised me that only about 6,000 people were at Catfish's game in 68. <laughs> this is the first year there was a ballpark 
and a team in Oakland. Yeah. How does that make sense? Yeah, not much. <laughs> and now we're looking at Oakland de- decamping from Oakland and going to Las Vegas. What do you think Vegas? What do you? What effect do you think Vegas will have on Major League Baseball when the A's go there? I don't know. It's really kind of hard to tell. I just don't know whether or not that fan base um, will be there. Um, I do think that it's kind of a tourism type town. Um, so I, I, I just don't know. Um, yeah, I, I do think that oftentimes it takes a generation or two to establish a really, you know, a you know, kind of get a feel for what that fan base will be. Um and I think, you know, the money will probably be there uh, for Vegas. Uh, but I just don't know whether or not those, uh, those uh, you know, solid, loyal fans will be there. And I, if they are, they'll, they'll definitely, it'll take a while, uh, I think, to, to grow that fan base. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Ward, though, here, my guest is Zach Ford. The book is called up. Ball players remember becoming major leaguers. It came out end of October. You can get it before Christmas on Amazon. And if you're listening to us after Christmas, as this will be out there forever, you can get it as long as it stays in print on Amazon. The last player I'm going to talk to you about, and then I have a question about yourself to wrap things up. But the last player is a guy who was... Who I this is a guy who I remember first as a Mariner and then he was traded to the Yankees and now he does television. I forget if he does TV for the Yankees or for somebody else. His name is Jeff Nelson. Oh wow, yeah. Jeff Nelson, uh that guy had a great story. Uh he was a 22nd round pick by the Dodgers in 1984. Um you know Pretty, he had a, a bit of a struggle. Um, rule five pick by the Mariners. In 1990, he sent back to A-ball. Keep in mind, he was, a, he, he was a pick in 1984, and in 1990, he's still in, in A-ball. Uh, but the Mariners saw something in him. The Mariners saw that he could be a solid relief pitcher. And he really, when he went back to A-ball in 1990, keep in mind that was his sixth, seventh season uh, in in the minor leagues. But he really kind of came to. He kind of, he found, um, you know, you know what he needed to do. Um, uh, in 1991, um, he decided to experiment a little bit with three-quarter arm delivery and found even more success. Um, so 1992, you know, he's with the Calgary Cannons and he gets that call up to the big leagues in his ninth professional season. One of the things I find interesting and amazing about Jeff Nelson is he got called up in his ninth professional season, but he still pitched in 15 big league seasons, which is just amazing to me. Working on the book called up, Zach Ford is the author and Let's say, Zach, name maybe two, three, five ballplayers, dead or alive. Either way, if you could have had them, you'd love to have them for the book. I would have to go with some of the old Pacific Coast League guys. Um, You know, I hadn't made reference earlier on um, about how um, 
I became friends with a lot of old Coast League ball players uh, as a teenager, just going to reunions with my uncle. It would have to be kind of some of the old Coast League guys. Lefty um, I'm sorry? Lefty O'Doul. Oh, oh, yeah, I'd definitely love to have, you know, a conversation with Lefty O'Doul, but I would... I would go with some of the ball players. I would probably revisit some of the ball players that I got to know when I was a teenager uh, that have been gone 10, 15, 20 years. And I'd love to be able to sit down with them because at that particular time, I wasn't, you know, as interested in, you know, chatting to chatting with them about their, you know, their experience of, you know, obviously in the Pacific Coast League, there wasn't the minor league structure as there was there is now uh so that adventure going up to the big leagues is definitely a, definitely a much more unique one um than it would be now going to the, from the pacific coast league to the to the major leagues um i really wish um i had been able to capture my uncle's story my uncle larry powell's story about being um up with the 1946 red sox and braves unfortunately he didn't get into a game um tony Fredes is another guy that i you got to know pitching the thirties. I uh, came up with the uh, um, athletics in nineteen thirty-two. I know I'm going way back here, but I'm you, you got me thinking about some of my old buddies from my old coast league days. The now now thinking about the actual book realistically, um, one of the players that kind of bridged that gap was a player by the name of Kuno Berrigan. Kuno Berrigan was a Pacific Coast League baseball player in the 50s uh, and 60s, but he came up to the Cubs in 1961, hit a home run in his first major league at bat. Uh, that ended up being his only major league home run. He was actually the first player that I interviewed for this book, which was great because it was kind of a bridge from my Pacific Coast League days and my fandom to... Uh, putting together this book. Unfortunately, his health has deteriorated in recent years, and I was not able to track him down. I know he he had to move out of his home into some assisted living, and I wasn't able to include him in the book because I wasn't able to get a signed release from him. But uh, those would be a few of the players that I definitely um, um, would love to have. But uh, understandably, it's more for sentimental reasons uh, than anything else. That's like my own wish that I could have interviewed Byram Sam, but when I did interview Harry Callis and asked him about it, he said that Mr. Sam had his health had gotten too bad to do it. But Harry gave me a great interview. So did Bob Murphy. So did Chuck Thompson of the Orioles. Uh, in my mm -hmm. career, I was lucky to get some of the broadcasters that I got. Yeah. Now, yeah. I ask authors who come on this program you've got the book it came out end of october mm -hmm. the book is called up ball players remember becoming major leaguers by zach ford it's out there it's got your name on it zach ford mm -hmm. what's next what's next i would love i there's something about the first person uh human interest stories uh, the narratives that always uh, excite me, uh, you know, dating back to the first time I discovered Glory of Their Times as a young baseball fan. So I always like putting together um, research projects and 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 stories from that first person player narrative. Uh, so I've thought about doing um, a book with similar structure of called up, but for uh, minor leagues to uh, different uh, elements of minor league baseball. 
um, whether it be drafts, road trips, um, uh, moves, um, you know, between uh, leagues, um, you know, different roommates or teammates that they've had that have gone up and down. Um, I like that human in element side. Um, I also have thought about putting together a book, um, just basically a memoir, um, uh, a passion project uh, about my uh, my friendships with those old Pacific Coast League ball players and how they've formed me as a uh, as a now forty five year old man. Um, you know, getting to know those ball players and learning life lessons from them as a as a teenager. Uh, is definitely something that I appreciate every day. And I definitely love to tell that story. We've been talking with Zach Ford, the author of Called Up, Ball Players Remember Becoming Major Leaguers. The book came out at the end of October. You can get it wherever you get your books. Zach, thank you for joining me on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime. Happy to happy to join you. We'll be back in just a minute with a word about next week's program. After a word from our sponsor, just keep it right where you got it. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. PortlandComputerServices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back with you again on the Baseball Lifer podcast, following a good chat with author Zach Ford, and his book is Called Up Ball Players Remember Becoming Major Leaguers. Next week, we have a doubleheader for you. We've just been able to arrange for David Finoli to join us for a segment next week. So David will join us and we'll have author Bill Cushing, who's a lifetime baseball fan and has written some stories which involve the game of baseball. So David Finoli and Bill Cushing on the Baseball Lifer podcast next week. Until then, this is Don Wardlow. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.